0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is on. Competition is on. Competition
1: is on. Competition Hello and welcome to another episode of Hard in the Paint with David Grubb. Please make sure you click the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. You can also catch me on Twitter and Instagram at DMGrub. And the show, you can follow at HITP underscore with underscore DG on Twitter and HITP with DGrub on Instagram. Don't forget to check my website, HITPwithDG.com, where you'll find articles, all of my radio, podcasts, and television appearances and the hitp store some great stuff in there an exciting day with the nba getting restarted with four exhibition games tonight And this afternoon, including the New Orleans Pelicans, who will face what's left of the Brooklyn Nets tonight, Zion Williamson is still unavailable for the Pels as he deals with a family situation. The organization did release a statement today that Williamson is being tested daily and will have to enter quarantine when he returns to Orlando. The date of his return is still up in the air. In the NFL, Jets owner Woody Johnson is being investigated for sexist and racist behavior as the ambassador to the UK and the Trump administration, this just continues to go on. Owners in the news constantly for what they're saying and what they're doing. And when are we going to start seeing owners held to the same standard or as they should be a higher standard than the players that they employ? Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. And we saw the reports that have gone back years on the sexual misconduct towards cheerleaders, towards staff within the facility. You have Mark Cuban and the stories about the systemic sexism in the Mavericks organization. And it went quiet. Cuban said he didn't know about it. And nothing happened. No discipline of all at all. Jim Irsay, who got caught in his car with enough drugs to be considered enough to distribute and lots of cash. He still has his team. Robert Kraft, who participated in whether knowingly or unknowingly, and this was not the first time he had gone to that place, participated in sex trafficking by having an erotic massage done in a strip mall in South Florida. Nothing has happened to Robert Kraft since. If these things had happened to players, what would the response have been? What about the conversation where we say playing... In these leagues, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, whatever, that it's a privilege. We keep telling these athletes who have worked their entire lives from the age of five, six, seven, practicing, honing their craft, becoming the best of the very best. And we tell them that's a privilege, not something that they earned, not something that they worked for. It's a privilege. What is being an owner, then, if not privilege? Because the only qualification, really, that you have to have to be an owner is, do you have enough money? You don't have to work to be an owner. You can say you work to get the money. Okay, fine. However, you got it. Some people worked harder than others. But ownership is a more exclusive club than being a player. Ownership is far more difficult to replace than a player. So which is the greater privilege? Clearly the privilege is ownership. You have to be accepted as an owner. It's a club. Player is a job. And it's one you have to be qualified for. You can't be a running back if you can't run. You can't be a wide receiver if you can't catch. You have to earn that. It's not a privilege. It's something that you have earned. It's something that that no one can take away from you other than somebody who's better or somebody who just decides, you you know, you have a bad circumstance. But as far as an owner, where are the mechanisms to deal with owners? Where are the disciplinary measures where the league says it holds owners to a higher account? Where are those disciplinary measures? And why have owners been so silent when it comes to talking about other owners? We're asked to speak up about players. We're asked to talk about players constantly. But where are owners? Players are asked to to account for their teammates. They account for their other players around the league when they say or do things. When are owners going to be held to account? When are owners going to be asked to to answer questions about other owners? Somebody's got to tell me that. Because the ultimate privilege is being an owner. There's your privilege. We don't even want to talk about that. The NFL also announced that if fans are permitted at games this season, they will be required to wear masks. We'll see how that goes. Because if you've got 20,000 people in your 75,000-seat stadium, do you have enough people to successfully monitor who is and who is not complying? What are you going to do with those people? Are going to eject them? And then if you eject them, what is that gonna look like on television, on live television, watching people get ejected from games for not wearing masks? I wanna see how that goes. To me, the best policy would be, don't have any fans. You don't have to worry about compliance and non-compliance. You don't have to worry about violence. You don't have to worry about people getting upset and irate and acting out and having to watch something like uh, these exhibitions that you see on social media at Walmart or other stores where people are going crazy because they're required to wear a mask. Is that what you want outside of NFL arenas and stadiums? We'll see how that goes. Today's show, though, we're going to focus on the New Orleans Saints. So coming up after this quick break is editor of Canal Street Chronicles, Ross Jackson, for our weekly edition of what we like to call the Dome Patrol. You are listening to Hard to Pick with David Grubb. you will be right back. Welcome back to Hard to Paint with David Grubb, as is our ritual each Wednesday. I welcome back my man, Ross Jackson, editor over at Canal Street Chronicles um, for our Dome Patrol segment. Dome Patrol. We're still working on a theme song. We got folks, we're telling them out there. Um, I think we're going to get some beats this week, though. I think we All are right. going to get some beats. So, um, so folks have already reached out to me and said they're going to send me some stuff. So, you know, you and I will listen to them pick out what we think is matches us the best and then yeah let's get it and and i'm gonna send you some merch if whoever gets picked you get some merch and And you uh, want
2: this merch you want this merch that's right let me tell you that right now you want this merch
1: that's right so go to the hitp (laughs) store it's on my website hitpwithdg.com so go check there and get some cool stuff all right so let's get into it let's get into it
0: yeah man training
1: camp supposed to start next week Still waiting on a couple things to get ironed out with the NFL. Um, but so far we know what agreements we do have with the NFLPA and the mm-hmm. league. So daily testing for the first two weeks of mm-hmm. training camp. If there are positive tests, they'll continue to do daily testing. If not, they'll break it down to what? I think it was three times a week.
2: Yeah, it's basically every that, other day.
1: Yeah. So um, And then we also know that there's no preseason games this season um, and that – Training camp rosters are going to be at 80 players, which means 10 Mm -hmm. guys are getting cut before they take snap one.
2: Yep. It's up to 320 jobs across the league, man.
1: So that alone, let's start with that. Yeah. How does that impact player evaluation? Because we've already seen a lot of guys who were fifth, sixth, seventh round picks, undrafted free agents, already say Mm -hmm. that you know this is a, a real disadvantage for them. What does this mean for them? What does this mean for Sean Payton in trying to establish depth? Um, for this team. Yeah, I mean, look,
2: the, the the real thing when it comes to the players is where the, the most detriment is, particularly undrafted free agents who still haven't officially signed contracts. If you've heard any numbers about undrafted free agents, it's all under the agreed to terms premise, which is not the same as putting ink to paper, right? Like we've seen that several times over time that's not exactly the same thing uh so any numbers that you've heard in terms of guarantees and things like that those are ones that teams might be a little bit more lean uh, more lean a little bit more toward honoring because they made those offers to them as guarantees So, you look at guys like joe bocce calvin throckmorton malcolm roach uh who's the other guy that got a guarantee jordan steckler the offensive lineman so those guys all got guarantees which i think will benefit them in terms of these negotiations and this this sort of negotiation all told about how the team is going to handle, you know, working with you know, having to figure out a way to cut three guys. I'm mm-hmm. oh, sorry, having to figure out a way to cut 10 guys before they ever actually see them. So that's where the evaluation process for the undrafted free agents in particular come through, as well as just any – low tier, I don't want to say low tier free agent, but let's just say late free agent veteran addition to an any new team to where they're spending their first year with the team. If there are journeymen of types that shows up, that could make it a little bit harder for them. You also have a couple of those guys that came over from the practice squad on futures contracts last year. Usually a futures contract is essentially a cordial invitation, if you will, to training camp, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to have a job come training camp because any number of things can happen. We saw you know, Noah Spence with his injury and a couple of other things that have happened over the few years to where these guys that you know, come down on certain contracts or, or even carry over from the next year don't necessarily make it to camp, whether it be because of injury or simply because the team wants to go a different direction and take a look at some of the other younger guys that they have available. So you could see that happen as well. But for Coach Payton and for the, and for the Saints, it makes the evaluation process, I don't want to say easier. But it does lighten the load a little bit to have 10 fewer players that you're constantly trying to evaluate. The Saints are in a very different position as a lot than a lot of other teams in the NFL to where look, they're they know what they what this team needs to be. Right. And for the most part, they know what this team looks like, even down to its depth for the most part. There's still some questions in terms of depth edge rusher. Uh, You also look at boundary corner. For instance, you have a guy coming out of the XFL, Dietrich Nichols. You're going to want to try to get a good look at him. I think anybody that's in the secondary, particularly at the corner positions, is pretty safe. There's a couple of names and safety that I could see potentially going the wayside. You look at a guy like Chris Johnson, who's Talented, but you know the sixth safety on the roster, and and most Saints fans will probably not even recognize the name for the most part, aside from like CJ 2K back in the day. But th- that ain't who we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and then and then you look at probably the offensive line where they want to try to get a look at as much as they can in terms of depth. But also you've got two unguaranteed, agreed to term contracts for undrafted free agents in Adrian McGee as well as in Darren Paulo. So you might see a couple of those guys even go to the wayside as well. So the, the evaluation process kind of goes back and forth. It gets a little bit lighter in terms of load with 10 fewer players, but trying to figure out and identify depth, trying to identify who the strongest candidates are at each position might be a little bit more challenging, but now they have an extended camp process and more intimate process to try to figure that out too, which can, sort of help to offset that a bit. Even though you don't get the full speed reps, a lot of those decisions are made in practice and in training camp anyway. And so for the teams that are evaluating the guys that are already in their facility, not too huge of a change. It's just that you don't get to see them in preseason action. And then other teams around don't get to see your players.
1: So do you think um, just as an adjustment, since there are no preseason games um, you know, the Saints typically have the black and gold game, but mm-hmm. and that's open to the public. Certainly it won't be if there's one this year, but mm-hmm. could you see Sean Payton doing more controlled scrimmages since they cannot um, interact with other teams in those types of situations, some physicality there just to put guys in actual, not practice game simulations, but a full, mm-hmm. you know, even a full half of just right. playing football to see where some of these guys are.
2: Yeah, I think you will, because you would also see that usually during the joint practices that they would have, which they were planning to have. I believe it was with the Los Angeles Rams this year. Uh, you, know, you would usually see some type of a scrimmage or at least some type of you know fully extended 11-on-11 11 11 drills where you're running full drives down the field. You usually see that in those joint practices. They're not going to have that, nor will they have the preseason games. So I imagine you'll see some type of a scrimmage in between. It's an interesting thing because the NFL's most recent Sort of protocol when it comes to training camp is that there will be no fans allowed at training camp. However, teams can have two fan-attended events. I don't know that you're going to see that, particularly you know, in certain areas in New, New Orleans, Orleans. Certainly, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. In New Orleans, certainly being one of them. So there is still like that kind of clouded idea that that could be out there, but I don't see that as a full-on reality. But I do think that you'll see them run scrimmages or at least some type of. You know, adjusted simulation so that they can get a good look at some of these other guys.
1: When we talk about what we don't have agreed to yet: um, the compensation for opt-out players, whether mm-hmm. they have to be high-risk opt-outs or personal choice opt-outs. Compensation for practice squad guys and things like that. Right. Two hundred and fifty grand for a player who opts out because they are a high risk. I can't see the NFL players association saying that's enough depending. And then right. the part, the other part too that I think is going to be a real sticking point is for those players who do opt out for the season, they're talking about extending your contract for right. a year. I think that is going to be a problem for guys too. Cause I think for some, yeah, that's security. I get to go back and, and mm-hmm. add that year, but for other people, that's another year farther away from free agency. That's another year farther away from maybe a contract renegotiation. It's another year further from, you know, uh, it's another year added on where you've lost money for your career. So Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's going to be, a. I think it's going to be a big sticking point.
2: Yeah, that one's going to take a little while. And the good news behind at least the the idea of the 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 well, actually no, excuse me, it's not really good news because they only have until August (laughs) first in terms of delivering any type of written notice. I'm looking at this like, oh well, the financials, you know, that can wait until there's still time. But when it comes to this one, there's not. We're what seven days away, or eight or nine days away, and so there's not really time at all. But uh, what I've what my understanding is that they're close to done on whatever the opt out agreement is we just haven't heard what that offer is going to be yet but there's a couple of different scenarios here you know the NFLPA has asked about at risk opt outs versus voluntary opt outs as well as vol- as well as opt outs because a player lives with family members that are at risk. And so there's three different classifications there. They provided the list as provided by the CDC about who is at risk and everything, which includes different things like what we've talked about before with body mass index, as well as any respiratory illnesses, even race plays uh, a factor into it, which we've seen across the country. And we've seen, well, we've seen all over the world really in terms of what those numbers look like. And so there's a ton of different variants to all of this or variables, excuse me, to all of this that can make somebody high risk. And it just kind of comes down to, uh, you know, the the NFLPA also needs to figure out guaranteed money Mm -hmm. if a player sits out, if they have guaranteed money for the season. So there's still some big questions to figure out here. The other thing to look at, too, is the way that player movement can still happen, even if a player is opted out. They can still be released, and if they get released, they can't renegotiate a new contract until the next season begins. They can be traded, but if they get traded, they still can't play because once you opt out, it's irrevocable. You it, you can't you can't withdraw. You know, you can't say, "Oh, I'm going to come back." So it can't be used as a holdout uh, issue. It can't be. Uh, it can, you can't renegotiate your contract while you're there, which is why that whole thing to where if you get released. You can't sign with a new team because you can't negotiate contracts and everything. So there's still some other things in terms of players being out of power if they decide to opt out that could be of detriment to them because a team could conceivably, I don't know that a team, you know, I don't know that depending the Saints would the do player. this, but depending on the player, if somebody opts out, if they opt out, the team could conceivably trade them for a player that has not opted out and then immediately replace them on their own roster while that guy's still out of a job for the year. Mm -hmm. you know and so there's still some things in here that i think the NFLPA, as you even mentioned are going to be pretty uncomfortable with whether it be the financials or simply just the player movement options for the teams but this is going to be one that's going to be they need to figure it out quick because they don't have a lot of time for the to the deadline that they set for written notice which was august 1st
1: and then you have the cap ramifications Mm -hmm. for next season the projections that the cap will go down even though you do have some more TV money kicking in relatively soon, and there could be potentially a way not to have a serious drop, but I don't think that's the way NFL owners work.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you look at the Saints position, as of right now, they're projected to be $47 million over the cap next year. Certainly then if the cap decreases, the players who are most impacted by that, Ryan Ramczyk, Demario mm-hmm. Davis, Alvin Kamara, um, Lattimore. and Lattimore. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about guys who would all command on the open market $14, $15 million or more. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is a real difficult situation for Mickey Lomas again. And then you're also talking about if Drew Brees, whatever money is held over on his contract, if you have to re-sign Jameis Winston at a legitimate quarterback salary, right? and you still have Taysom Hill under contract, you'd still need a third quarterback on your roster as well. Right. There's so much – financially at stake for the saints this season
2: yeah and you still have other people that i guess you consider role players that right. are going to be going into free agency as well you look at alex anzalone stands out for me uh janoris jenkins would be a decision to be made as well you look at marcus williams whose contract expires after this year so there's a lot of different players here where the saints were already in a very complicated situation with just a ton of talent. talents what happens when you draft well a ton of talent looks to be you know mass exodus on you at, at a certain point. And then you sort of have to figure out who you're going to resign, who's willing to take deals, all these other things and how to structure those deals and make it work. But it's going to be interesting to see how teams navigate this. You know, even if they stay at a flat cap next year at the $198.2 million that we saw this season, that's still nearly $20,000, $17,000 less than with the, I'm sorry, $1,000 million less <laughs> than what was expected in terms of what the growth was expected to be going into 2020, uh, 2021, which I believe was around 215, $213 million is about where that was expected to be, or somewhere between 203 to 213 or 205 to 250. So it's usually, they give you like a 10 $10 million window. And so you're looking at a pretty good sizable increase what we saw this year, not including the potential for the TV deals and TV money if that were to kick in next year or the year after. So I think that the NFLPA's idea of putting in, essentially installing a flat cap for next year and then spreading out the loss over the remaining years of the CBA, which would be 2022 through 2020 to 2030, that allows you to sort of take that hit <laughs> over that time while also actually seeing the influx of new money and new uh, and, and the TV deals and all of that. so it sort of balances out that way as opposed to potentially taking you know a, a 70 million dollar hit going into next season, which is going to cripple every team across mm-hmm. the NFL severely because oh. a lot of teams next year are spending a lot of teams are spending more money next year than they're spending this year, and that's going to be humongous for any team at least the Saints getting down to the flat cap idea of repeating this year's cap space, there's ways to do it. Drew Brees retires. You save over $13 million. There's restructures, there's renegotiations, things like that, that can happen as well as guys like Nick Easton who can be cut for instance and so on. And so it, it, you know, it's a little bit easier to get back down to this year's number, but getting lower than this year's number and $70 million lower than this year's number up to that could be crippling for every team across the NFL and owners, as you mentioned earlier, I don't know that they want to see that happen to their teams is the other part. So they should be just as invested in trying to figure out ways to save this money that don't cost 35% of every player's salary in escrow that they might or might not get back or that install this, you know, flat cap for next year to avoid losing a ton of money.
1: That might be the only benefit of the players' association doing a 10 year deal right. is that they can spread out that loss. I mean, yes. this, again, that's, it's, True. it's, it's completely unprecedented we know for a team, for a player, a union to sign a 10 year contract, mm-hmm. this might be the only thing D Smith gets out of that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so as we go into camp,
2: mm-hmm.
1: let's talk from where your perspective is on the most important position battles. I think the general consensus is linebacker, mm-hmm. um, defensive end,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that third corner. That's And, and um, of course seeing if uh, the offensive line comes to gel with Ruiz moving into that center spot. And if Andres Pete, who we'll talk about a little bit more later can mm-hmm. solidify his position, but what are the ones that you, that you're particularly, and how would you rank them?
2: Yeah. So one of the most important ones that I'm looking at is offensive line depth. And I guess it's even beyond depth because it is that it is that Cesar Ruiz, Eric McCoy conversation about who plugs in where. I think we're both on the same page that we think it's Cesar Ruiz at center, Eric McCoy at right guard. But then what about after that? Because the Saints are in a pretty unique situation here, apropos their their usual tenure over these last few years to where if one player gets hurt, you have to shuffle around several different positions. Mm -hmm. They look to finally be in a place you know, with the additions of guys like James Hurst with the development of Will Clapp, who played pretty well in the times that you saw him last year, the addition of Nick Easton last year, you're actually in a position now to where you can have a backup center, a backup guard, a backup tackle that are specifically focused on their individual positions that doesn't require, if Taron Armstead, you know, misses some time to move Andrews Pete, plug in somebody in Andrews Pete spot and have to swap around the in- communication for two separate players, as opposed to just affecting the one position that needs to be replaced. I think that's very important, particularly in a season like this, to where you're not even just talking about injuries anymore right. in terms of losing somebody in terms of time. It could just simply be that somebody gets sick for two weeks and then you're or longer or longer or a or family, longer, member, or longer, or a family. Right, right? There's so many different variables within this now that I think depth becomes a very important part of the conversation. It's why I hope that they extend that 16, you know, extend that practice squad uh, number and also allow you to bring players back and forth either v- whether it be through injured reserve or through their practice squad because it allows the team to carry sort of a backup host of players that can help with that because there's all of those things that are secondary tertiary to affecting what happens on the field so offensive line depth i'm really interested in the defensive line particularly on the interior does sheldon rankins come back healthy enough right away to where, you know, in this essentially month after they get pads on going into the first game in September, September 13th, hosting the bucks. Is he going to be, in a place where he's ready to go at the top of the season? Or do we see a little bit more David Onyemata, Malcolm Brown, with Sheldon Rankins rotating in? And does a guy like Malcolm Roach end up being the third undrafted free agent in a row that ends up plugging in? Somewhere there we saw Taylor Stallworth do it two years ago. Mm-hmm. shy Tuttle last year with a stiff arm on Matt Ryan. Can't I can't say <laughs> shy Tuttle. I can't say his name without referencing the stiff you arm. Can't. You know no. what I'm saying? You can't. You can't do that. He's and going then, to be a
1: legend forever because of oh, that. Oh, man. He'll never have to buy a drink in New Orleans. <laughs> I would just keep that on my phone all the time. Like, people forget who you are. They don't know your He's face. like, this is me.
2: <laughs> this me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you have,
2: you know, those guys that have done it. Malcolm Roach has the potential to do it as well. So there's, there's some excitement going on on that defensive line that I think can be very good. The Saints love their rotation there. And, again, it's another position to where – it can be affected by any number of things. And so you want to have the most valuable depth possible that you can get there. Sean Payton believes that games are won in the trenches. I tend to agree with them. I think defense in the trenches, obviously, very important. And so you're going to want to make sure that you have that sort of stable of guys that are able to keep that rotation going regardless of what happens. I look at the next one that jumps out to me immediately as linebacker. Um, I I would like to go to boundary corner at this Mm -hmm. point in terms of depth, but I still put linebacker above that because we saw what happened with the Saints when they were without AJ Klein and without Alex Anzalone and without Kiko Alonso. they got tore up over the middle of the field on defense and that's where quarterbacks in the NFL want to throw the ball quarterbacks don't win throwing the ball all the way down the field unless you're Patrick Mahomes over on the perimeter. You, you attack the middle of the field for the most part. And even Patrick Mahomes does that for the most yep. part. I guess really the only exception would be Jimmy Garoppolo because he throws everything behind the line of scrimmage. <laughs> but outside of that, you look at some of these other, the, you know, all these other quarterbacks across the NFL, you want to attack the middle of the field. So those linebackers are going to be very important. And then now you look at the way that the adjustment has happened with there being no preseason and with there being a longer ramp up and build up into the first uh, regular season game. How does that affect a guy like Zach Bond? First of all, it gives him more time to figure out where he fits the best, but it doesn't give him enough time in terms of full speed reps, even though it's preseason. We know preseason is slower than regular season, but going directly from training camp and practice and scrimmages into the regular season is a bit of a jump. So if Kiko Alonso is not ready to go at the beginning of the season, even though he's expected to be back for camp is what, what you know Nick Underhill reported and a couple of other guys have said, you look at that. If that's not the case, Zach Bond gets thrust into action and he has no middle ground from training camp and practice into the first game of the season. So for me, that means that the Sam linebacker position might be the most advantageous for him going into week one, if that's where they want to place him, because then he's a little bit more focused on see ball, get ball more than anything else and then he comes off the field in those nickel sets more than likely I think is what you would see so there's time to figure all those questions out but I think that's a very very important one especially if they want him to work in coverage at all Um, how does he how does he sort of acclimate to his new setting and his new position with no time to get it under his belt in terms of rhythm is there a way to build it in in such a way that he can get a little bit more comfortable and get in rhythm early in the season
1: Moving on to individual players mm-hmm. which vets is this camp very important um are this camp is this camp very important for, and who are the rookies undrafted free agents that you're really going to have your eye on
2: yeah, so I look at. When it comes to vets, I think, well, let's talk about a newcomer to start off with. There's a lot of anticipation and excitement around Emmanuel Sanders. Mm -hmm. I think this style of offseason might be beneficial for Emmanuel Sanders because one of the biggest things that you've heard both Drew Brees and Emmanuel Sanders talk about when talking about one another is getting communication, getting timing down, getting a rhythm down, and getting chemistry built now You know, you get to 20 days into practice and then pads are added and then you've got a month before that first game nearly a month it's the 16th to the 13th before the actual game, but you have so much time to build that rhythm and we see how important rhythm is for Drew Brees and new pass catchers in the offense because you look at Jerry Cook last year. And the detriment that started off at the beginning of the season because of the lack of rhythm, because he was injured for a portion of it and then drew, for a portion of camp, and then Drew Brees was injured for a portion of the season. And then they got into rhythm after the bye week when they were both on the field at the same time. So you see how important rhythm is for Drew Brees and new pass catchers in that offense. Emmanuel Sanders now gets kind of a really interesting opportunity to build that chemistry and build that timing to actually provide another reliable and trustworthy receiving source outside of michael thomas at the wide receiver position i think that that could potentially be very beneficial for him uh conditioning is going to be a question mark across the board for every for every player you know what i mean so there's always going to be exceptions but i think that that could be a benefit for both drew Brees and for uh emmanuel sanders another vet that i'm looking forward to seeing with all of this is uh well i guess can I call him a vet? It's his second year. <laughs> his second year vet, second year young guy. But I'm, I'm curious to see the growth of Chauncey yeah. Garner-Johnson, CJ Garner-Johnson with all of this because he gets so much time now to continue to work throughout practice and training camp and can be a little bit more finite in his attention to detail in his work. And he gets all of that time under the mentorship of Malcolm Jenkins at the same time. So now you have another coach in the secondary and a leader in the secondary. You've also got DJ Swearinger back there as well, who's a vet, Janoris Jenkins, who's a vet. So now he has all of these veteran presences around him and a ton of time to get ready for the season, I think that that's something that can benefit him as well. I think that you're probably going to see him. You know, he's a bit of a risky player just in terms of like throwing his body around. So I think that you'll see that early on in the season, but hopefully not to his detriment. And then you'll be able to sort of see him back off on that since you won't have the preseason to get those reps in. Mm-hmm. But I think you're going to see that from a lot of defensive backs and a lot of defensive players all told uh, in the NFL this season. But I'm curious to see what his development looks like. And then another guy that stood out to me is Ty Montgomery. Ty Montgomery coming in with his first season uh, here with the Saints. He gets a little bit of a benefit here because very likely, I would imagine Tony Jones Jr., the undrafted free agent running back out of Notre Dame, probably not going to be a part of that 80-man team. You're looking at him as an undrafted free agent coming in without any guarantees at a position to where the Saints already feel comfortable with three running backs that they had last year. Then they add in Tony Jones Jr., add in Ty Montgomery. Now you can expect Tony Jones Jr. to probably be gone, and then Ty Montgomery to just be able to focus on his competition with, I'll say, Dwayne Washington for running back three. So and, I think that, that gives with, him a lot of time.
1: And plus with Ty, you're getting a guy who plays two positions. So it's exactly. saving a roster spot on two sides the same way they do with Taysom mm-hmm. Hill, and if you can classify Taysom essentially as an athlete as well as a quarterback, you know, right. again, you're know, again, you getting multiple uses. And in, in this season – You know, Mm -hmm. like you said, the Saints and that versatility, which is what they tried to establish with every one of the offensive linemen that they went after, people who could be multi-positional. I think that's still something that in this season, the guys who can do more are going to be more valuable. That's exactly right. That's the case.
2: And now he gets time to build rhythm and prove that.
1: Mm -hmm. So the rookies now.
2: So for undrafted free agents, I'm really interested in, uh, uh, in Joe Bacci. You know, we talked about that linebacker mm-hmm. position, particularly the Sam linebacker position, which might need some depth depending upon Kiko Alonso's health Where does Yobachi, you know, is he able to be one of those guys that has the highest amount of guaranteed money across the Saints undrafted free agents? Where does a guy like him fit in? Uh, Calvin Throckmorton's another one that I'm very interested in because he plays every single offensive line position. Could he be somebody that ends up maybe not making the roster, but makes a practice squad spot that becomes extremely important? in this particular season built under the pre- the precedents that we're a part of now and under the sort of procedures that we're under now. And depending upon what those uh, sort of terms end up being and protocols end up being for bringing up and you know, elevating and de-ele- or de-elevating, if you will, um, Esca- de-escalating i guess i don't know deactivating uh, but or, no, yeah no. pulling up and sending people back down to the practice squad like, so, like being able to do all that <laughs> yeah exactly and so how much of that is uh, you know can calvin throckmorton fit in if they need that depth at defensive line um uh, the other just drafted rookie that i'm really you know we mentioned caesar Rees, we've mentioned zach bond but adam troutman as well he now gets a big build up and lead into, into his rookie year without getting into those preseason games. But now he gets all of that time to work with the Saints in terms of those two tight end sets they want to start putting in. One of the biggest challenges for a rookie tight end coming into the NFL is learning the blocking schemes he now gets to really, really focus in on that if, he, if, if he's able to, depending upon what the Saints are asking him to do right away. But they could really focus in with him in terms of those blocking teams. And maybe you see him have a little bit more of an impact because he's a little bit more familiar with the offense, which is where rookie tight ends tend to struggle. You know. And so maybe that lead-in time also helps him a lot. There's a lot of different ways that this affects you know, all these different players, some in positive, some not so much and all, but it'll be interesting to see how quickly a guy like Adam Traubman, for instance, might be able to actually come in and be a part of this offense and sort of contribute a little bit earlier than what we're used to seeing from rookie tight ends. Or does the fact that he gets no preseason to get reps, does that end up slowing him down so that he's, you know, right along with the usual trend? We'll see exactly where he fits in, but it'll be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I think there like some of the things that I had been thinking about as far as potential advantages in not having the preseason games is A, you don't have travel days. Right. So you you can rest at home wherever mm-hmm. these players are going to be stationed, but you can rest at home and get guys that extra work. So Breeze can right. work on timing with Troutman one on one. You can do some seven on sevens mm-hmm. on your off day, you know, and guys will just come in. Because yep. we, we know that's going to happen. Yeah. We know Drew Brees is gonna be organizing every yeah. session that he can get. <laughs> Yeah, And then I also look at it like this. Our last conversation, we talked a lot about the division games. And if the season were mm-hmm. interrupted, that you know that there would be a focus on the division games right. to get those done. When you look around the division, the Saints are of, have an intimate familiarity, obviously, with what with, with Joe Brady likes to do mm-hmm. because he comes from their system. They know the Teddy problem. Bridgewater. You yep. know what he's capable of. So mm-hmm. I think that defensively you're able to plan for that. and and game plan um, for your offense and your defense to to be prepared. Atlanta, certainly the Saints have all the film necessary on them. And then they've got experience dealing with a similar kind of offense now because Mm -hmm. with Tom Brady, it's not going to be a downfield offense in Tampa. So you're seeing some similar limitations as far as your quarterback between Breeze and Brady. So I think Mm -hmm. that adjustment for the Saints – Actually, it gives him more time on that. So that could be a potential benefit as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then on top of all of that, you just simply have that this team, the New Orleans Saints, are the most consistent team coming out of last year and into this season in the division, which I think is going to be helpful for this team. We've talked about it before in terms of communication, cohesion, communication, I'm sorry, um, uh, uh, translation in terms of installing the new offenses everything like that, all of that rhythm and continuity is going to be there for the Saints, where it's not there for the remaining divisional opponents who are dealing with either new quarterbacks, new coaches, or new schemes. That's big. That's big and plays in favor for the Saints. I think the the, the Falcons are probably the next most consistent for certain because they didn't change a signal caller. They didn't change a head coach, even though they should have made widespread <laughs> changes to that coach and staff uh, this past season. But then they went, oh, well, we beat the Saints and we beat the Eagles. And we beat the 49ers. So I guess we'll keep you around. Don't Dan, let them
1: nines fool you. I'm
2: saying, yeah, right. We, we've seen that. Um but I mean, yeah, I, I think that that's something that's going to be extremely beneficial for them going into 2020 is just the, the familiarity with this team. And because of that, there should be able to get more work done during this offseason as well, because it's going to be less about trying to translate a new offense and more about just make, putting this, the same offense in that you know Sean Payton's been running for you know with nuances and with, with adjustments and everything. But he's been consistent in terms of what he wants to do. And I don't see that changing here in 2020.
1: One of those things that we've talked about as well is, is just trying to achieve that balance. This offensive line is, it seems, primarily suited mm-hmm. to do well in the round game. Do you think that there is a, an adjustment, especially as you start the season, as you're trying to figure things out? You didn't get as many reps against other teams. Do the Saints, do you think, make that adjust, adjustment and try to, to capitalize on the physicality of a very strong offensive line
2: yeah i mean i think that they do I, it's funny you look back at 2011 which is the last time we've had something like this happen to where you have a bit of an abbreviated offseason and because they, there was the lockout in 2011 they didn't start camp until i think it was the 25th of july and so this is pretty similar but you look at the 2011 team and they came out guns blazing and throwing the ball and they had a really good run, a really good run game that year. We've talked about it before. The Saints, you know, five, top five times in terms of balancing. Their run and pass game and they've made the playoffs each of those times they have had winning records most of those times and so you look for the saints to do what they have to do as they've done over the last three years to go 40 percent or more leaning toward the run game but you might see a little bit more of a lean to the run game early on in the season that sort of trickles away as the team becomes a little bit more comfortable in terms of their their passing game their rhythm and their timing on on offense as well as just getting a grasp on what it's like to play with no fans in the stands mm-hmm. and everything you know you know establish the run game get something a little bit more grounded no pun intended but you know continue to use that as a means of understanding what this new rhythm is what it, what momentum feels like all of this other stuff that's going to come with it you can utilize the ground game to sort of get you ready for that and then mm-hmm. later on set up the pass the way that you'd like to in the nfl saints don't use a ton of play action I expect that you'll see them establish, or didn't use a ton of play action last year. I expect that you'll see them reestablish that as a part of their offense here in 2020, particularly with the situations that they'll be under, and perhaps a little bit more of a focus on the run game. But I think that the run game is a safe way to go early on in the season to establish your rhythm and build your continuity, and then you start to take advantage of the pass game as it becomes a little bit more comfortable. But at the same time, like I mentioned, 2011, they just came out guns blazing ready to throw the football. So you might see that approach too. But I think either way, you're going to see Sean Payton try to keep up the recent trend that we've seen in 2017, 18 and 19 to where there is a little bit more of a run pass balance.
1: Yeah, because I think play action really benefits a number mm-hmm. of guys on that team. Like we've, we've stressed Emmanuel Sanders so much, but I think it does because he's such a precise route runner. And yep. if he gets that extra step because of the play action, that gives him that chance to run after the catch, which is something the Saints have lacked. Same with Jared Cook, that extra step to get him past that linebacker and attack the boundaries, which is what he's so good at. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I really like that as well. And for now in Kamara, when you have to hold for that one second and you don't know if he's going to run or if he's going to drop out of the backfield and, and, and catch a pass, I think it it it, and it protects Drew Brees because mm-hmm. as we'll get to in just a minute, because this Andrews Pete thing, the article that uh, you guys did on that was really, really informative. But yeah. I mean, I just think it it helps that line too, especially on that side. Um, yeah. So let's get into, first let's get into, let's go right into that article and then we'll do mm-hmm. the other one that I really liked. So you had an analysis of Andrews Pete versus Larry Warford.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and we've had, and Saints fans have had this conversation again and again about the value of Andrews Pete. We both thought that it was a surprise on his, the, mo- the money that he got. Um, but the numbers indicate that there is a significant difference in the performance of Larry Warford and <laughs> Andrews Pete, particularly in pass protection. Can you just talk about that a bit and, and, and why that can be concerning for the Saints?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I just pulled it up to make sure that I got the right numbers in, because I want to give specific numbers here. But the, one of the biggest takeaways from this article that I had was the idea that, and this was written by, I think this was Andrew, if I remember correctly. Uh, yes, Andrew Bell, fantastic writer over at Canal Street Chronicles, one of our, our like, best film study guys that we have over there. But he looked at these, these two players and compared them in terms of uh, pass pressures and everything. And you actually found that Pete and Warford gave up the same amount of pressures when you look at the way that the two played. So we often rag on uh, Andrews Pete because of his, you know, we look at the, the, the team, the, the, the week two game, he gave up the pressure to Aaron Donald that led to the UCL tear and everything. And we love to give him, you know, we love to talk bad about Andrus Pete because the pressures that he gave up, but you saw the same amount of pressures given up by Larry Warford as well. The way that he charted it, he looked at 14 total pressures between weeks one and eight uh, for Pete, despite lining up for 24 less snaps than Warford. But then you look at the way that they performed over the rest of the season and they pretty much came together. The biggest part of it being the amount of hits that were allowed. So Warford's pressures that he gave up accumulated more, accumulated to more times that, and Drew Brees was actually hit, or a quarterback, because there was some you know five games with Teddy Bridgewater as well, where they were actually hit, and that's a huge, huge part about you know giving up these pressures is that look pressure hurries that's one thing, but if the 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 quarterback's actually taking licks, taking hits, taking a beating, that's what ends up adjusting a quarterback's mindset about I got to get rid of the ball faster things like that particularly if you look at a game like the uh the week nine game or week 10 game i can't remember right after the bye week against the atlanta Mm -hmm. falcons where the falcons a lot of hits lot of hits during that game and then he was just coming back it was only a second game back off the ucl tear on top of that so every time i don't know about you but every time that he got hit i was like oh gosh Mm -hmm. you know you just feel you know you feel more because of all that uh the other thing that andrew did that was really really impressive was that he looked at uncharted losses and so there's a big big difference between what we look at on pro football focus in terms of the amount of pressures there's also times to where maybe a pressure doesn't you know maybe somebody gets past larry warford but somebody else intervenes like an alvin Kamara or let's Stavius Murray, to where there's no pressure. So technically, it doesn't get credited to Larry Warford. But um, he looked at all of the different uncharted losses to where there were seven for Pete and then one for Warford. So this was a place where Warford didn't have as many uncharted losses. So sometimes that plays in a fa- into factors too to where you look at a player and then you say that player, that's why it, sometimes it feels like that player does worse than what the numbers actually reflect. Mm-hmm. And it's because sometimes there are things that don't get charted in terms of the numbers on the page that you're actually able to see. So that was another one that I thought was really interesting that actually spoke toward Pete being you know, a little bit, I don't want to say worse, but, you know, giving up more pressures than a guy like Larry Warford. It's
1: a, it's, it's something that's an outlier because like you said, it's not a stat per Mm -hmm. se, but it indicates a problem, an issue. Right. And, and you do, I mean, I kind of view it as like wins by three points, you know, and you win by one score. It's not something that you can carry over from year to year as a real stat because there's it's it's a luck thing and that's mm-hmm. what some of these uncharted pressures are is just the guy didn't get there he beat right. you he just didn't get there and it's right. the same with sex when we talk about those numbers yeah uh, you know cam can get 15 and a half sex but he might have but the pressures you add on to that are more important sometimes than the sex so that's yeah exactly i think right. that that's an interest it's a really interesting stat the grading was the thing that really stood out too
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can look at the way that these guys really felt. Well, the sort of the difference between these two and how they fell off going into 2019. There was a huge drop in terms of uh, pressure, or, or not drop, but I guess, I guess, really what I'm trying to say is that there was a drop in production from Larry Warford in that he allowed way more. Uh, pressures when it came into 2020 versus, I'm sorry, 2019 versus 2018, almost doubling those pressure numbers and doubling in terms of the percentages as well. And that's probably, that's really the thing that you hear referenced so much when you hear Sean Payton talk so openly talking about, you know, we noticed the drop-off in in, uh, Larry Warford is those types of numbers in terms of charting all of that and seeing sort of just the way that that play degraded over time. Is that you can see that his pressure percentages doubled, his pressure numbers doubled, all of that. And when your pressure percentages double, that's a big deal because that just that feels a little bit more magnanimous because it explains why you feel like it's happening so often, Mm -hmm. even if it maybe happens at a lesser rate in terms of the actual number itself, which wasn't the case for Larry Warford. It was a doubling of both of those things because he played around the same amount of snaps. But you might see a guy play fewer snaps and give up a larger percentage of pressures. Right. And that's why that feels so terrible. It's why Nick Easton was you know, a little bit on the fence for a lot of people are on the fence about Nick Easton because he played fewer snaps, but gave up a considerable percentage of pressures, you saw that same thing happen last year with Larry Warford played the same amount of snaps as he played your similar amount of snaps that he had played in the past, but gave up a ton, you know, doubling in those pressure stats, which I think is pretty big and explains a good portion of why the Saints were ready to move on from him. You didn't see that type of of, of production or that type of jump rather, and the lack of production with Andres Pete, you saw it a little bit. Don't get me wrong, but you didn't see it as much as you saw with Larry Warford.
1: But when like those ratings over the last five years, mm-hmm. and then you look at, only one year for Pete over 72 years, right below 50. And then you have Warford has only in that period had what one season below one 80? season
2: below 80. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, it's, again, it's not to say that Pete is, is garbage, but right. there is still as far as consistency goes, that's always been his issue. Mm. And I think some of that's clearly affected by the injuries that he's had. His numbers sure. are impacted by that. But do you think he can get to that 80 range this season? Because that's where he has to be.
2: Yeah, I, it makes you wonder if having more, you know, if there was the drop-off from Andrews Pete. Max Unger, who I thought still played very well his final season before he was re- he retired, but he said openly that he retired and a portion of that was because of his lat his drop off that he felt in the game it kind of makes you wonder if Andres pete is lined up next to these two guys that are trending upward as opposed to two guys that are trending down if that somehow helps Andres pete as well just simply based upon communication maybe it's based upon having somebody next to you that can help double team in the you know on that left side like Cesar ruiz can all of those different elements could potentially end up affecting the saints. And also now that the saints have, or rather affecting Andrews speed, but also now that the saints have all of this quickness, all this agility, all of this speed on the offensive line, how does that affect their play calling and the style of approach that they take with the offensive line that could potentially play a little bit more toward Andrew Pete's strengths, as opposed to having to feel like they have to go a little bit more to a man blocking scheme on run in the run game, for instance, or potentially different types of blocking assignments in the passing game in terms of who slides, where who pulls all of this other stuff uh, you know all of these other variants that you can take upon the offensive line how does that end up affecting and does that end up benefiting Andres Pete to put him finally in a position to where he can rate you know as high as his let me say his potential particularly coming into the nfl when he was coming into the nfl uh, has shown over the past few years and can he rate up to where his contract pays him to play is the other big question at this point, it's hard to say that you have confidence that it will based upon the numbers that we're talking about here, mm-hmm. but perhaps this, these changes in personnel allow for a bit of a change in style that benefits Andrews Pete going into 2020, but remains to be seen.
1: And he could also be one of those guys who's really, you know, if the cap is significantly affected because of what he's been paid now, mm-hmm. if he doesn't have that kind of season, he certainly could be one of those players on the block, um, to, to make some salary cap room.
2: Right, absolutely. Whether that be via renegotiation or whether that be from, hey, look, we have to eat this dead money because yes, we'll eat some dead money, but we'll also save some money based on what you already count against the cap and stuff. And so there's a lot of different areas that the Saints could go or a lot of different angles of the Saints could go when it comes to Andrews P. And we know that they would love nothing more than to be able to go into the draft next year and choose another offensive lineman in the first <laughs> round anyway. So this would definitely open the door to allow them to be able to do that
1: yes it would and, and, and that's the whole thing is they're trying to find those positions where they can get less expensive mm-hmm. and have these kinds of I, it's a much better problem to have young players you're in position to pay than players right. who are at their prime or past their prime who are asking for five six-year deals right and so I, I it's a i'd rather have that problem if i'm mickey loomis i got mm-hmm. so much young talent i got to figure out how to pay it that, yep. that's a that's a good problem to have yeah exactly The other piece that I noticed on the site, uh, Deuce Windham did something about Sean Payton's um, Hall of Fame case, really. And um, I don't know if Payton is a lock yet. Uh, I think he certainly has a great case Mm -hmm. um, at this stage. My one thing is since 2010, you know, the Saints have been back to one NFC championship game. They have two playoff wins Mm -hmm. um, in that stretch. He, he doesn't have like the Don Shula 300 wins that you could kind of right. to rest on. And I don't think anybody's going to get to that again in the NFL. But mm-hmm. he kind of does need just one more great season. And I yeah. think he certainly wants to have some years post-breeze mm-hmm. to, make, to, to kind of disassociate that connection slightly and have get his due yeah. at, for creating as much as he did.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I look, here's here's the thing for me when it comes to Sean Payton. Um, about thirty more wins would be beneficial for it's him. Just in terms, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like get get to that place where your sample size is a little bit more in contention with some of these guys that are already in the Hall of Fame. Everybody, all the coaches that he compared. To that Deuce compared to Sean Payton to were offensive minded coaches. There were right. offensive play callers, or they were offensive coordinators in their past. You're looking at Vince Lombardi, you're looking at Joe Gibbs, you're looking at Mac- Mike Shanahan, you're looking at these guys. Bill and Walsh, so, Tom Landry, Bill Walsh, yeah, yeah, those are the other Hall of Famers. And the, the thing about it is that when you look at those four Hall of Famers that are on that list, Bill Walsh, Tom Landry, and then you had uh, Vince Don Lombardi Correo. and and uh, and Joe Gibbs. Yeah, you look at those four Hall of Famers. That Sean Payton compares to he hits most of the thresholds that are set in evidence by those guys when you look at his win percentage which is around 62 percent you look at his percentage of offenses in the top 10 which is nearly 93 94 percent there and then you look at how many times he's had uh, offenses in the top five he's well over some of those thresholds as well so he fits in right there but I think it's you know 30 more wins or so in his career which is only you know, let's say four or five more years of coaching, which he definitely has under his belt. And that would give him, to your point, at least a few years without Drew Brees doing that. And then the other thing would be another Super Bowl win. I think that would really, really help him out because that gives him that great season. And I think that makes him a very, very, like as close to a lock without being an an absolute lock as you can get if he gets that multiple, you know, if he gets multiple Super Bowls. But even if you look at some of the other coaches that have won multiple Super Bowls, they don't have, you know, the top five offenses that Sean Payton has. They don't have the win percentage that Sean Payton has. They don't have the top five, top 10 offenses that Sean Payton has. And the other thing about Sean Payton that, Deuce really illustrated very, very well when you look at the evolution. He took uh, two plays from four verse, one from 2011, one from later, and he looked at the nuances and the changes that he made to essentially the same play but that allows different things like Michael Thomas operating out of the slot as opposed to on the outside giving the running back option routes he has evolved in his game You know, we talked earlier about him being a constant him being consistent but the evolution that he's shown in his game the way that he approaches game plans the way that he creates for his players and the way that he has built a team culture around the idea that I'm going to bring you in and take advantage of what your skill set is versus trying to shoehorn you in to a certain place where i need you to fit all of those things really usher him into sort of the lead, uh, you know i, I don't want to say the leader but a leader in modern day uh in the modern day period of coaching his eight and seven playoff record a lot of people will look at that and, and kind of chagrin to it but i mean you look at andy reed who's 15 and 14 you look at some of these other coaches out there where the win percentage in the playoffs is isn't much improved from where Sean Payton is because winning in the playoffs simply is not easy. And then you look at three of those wins – three of those losses, excuse me. The one against San Francisco. Yeah. The one against uh, Minnesota in 2007. And the one against Los Angeles in 2018. Do you really put those on Sean Payton?
1: Well, uh, no, no, no. So I think that with that –
2: you know what I mean? Like that changes the way that you look at you know, the, the context changes the way that maybe you look at the eight and seven playoff record that some people may feel a little uncomfortable with in terms of where he ranks amongst these other coaches. He's actually not far off in terms of what that win percentage is in the playoffs.
1: Yeah. I think he's certainly a better coach than let's say John Gruden,
2: you know, yes. who is
1: viewed as yes. this incredible offensive mind um, and has never gotten close to the success that he had. Um, with the Raiders and um, with uh, – well, the first stint with the Raiders and mm-hmm. then um, with Tampa because after they, they won that Super Bowl. Team. Yeah, took over something <laughs> And then it just completely fell off the map. He never right. developed a second quarterback. Still right. hasn't really done that. It hasn't made Derek Carr appreciably better since mm-hmm. he's had his hands on him. I think it does come down to not the postseason winning percentage, mm-hmm. but I think when you start splitting the hairs amongst those coaches, the thing mm-hmm. Andy Reid also had was – Five straight NFC Championship game appearances. Right. You know um, when you look at some of these with Bill Walsh or um, you know you go 20 straight years with Tom Landry of not having a losing season. Mm-hmm. You know those are different things that starts Bill Walsh taking his team and you get three you know in the Super Bowl. You know, even when they, the 49ers had rough years, you still got three Super Bowl wins. You developed, you know, and, and then you also have Walsh having worked with Kenny Anderson before he got to right. San Francisco. And then the transition from he's the first, he started the transition from Montana to Young. Mm-hmm. So those things kind of are those extras when you start splitting the hairs right. on coaches. So I think it may not be another Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, it would that certainly, I think, would put him over the top.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. A Super
1: Bowl to me would like you said, it's not a hundred percent. You're not a first ballot because I think coaches, it's always hard for coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, look how long it took Jimmy Johnson. Right. You know what I mean? And he won back to back Super Bowls and built a team from scratch. And it took right. Jimmy a long time to get back in there mm-hmm. um, into that. So yeah, I think it's not. It's never easy to get in the Hall of Fame, or else everybody would be in there. Right. But um, I think Sean Payton, the one thing is. Yeah, a couple more division titles because remember mm-hmm. it was – there weren't – like up until recently, there was no back-to-back division title winner in the NFC South. Right, Every yeah. year somebody else won it. Yeah. So I think, you know, you don't – that's the one thing that's missing. You don't have that Belichick long-standing consistency or that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the Andy Reid even level. Um, but of the other coaches, yeah, if, if you're putting him in a conversation with Pete Carroll, he beats Pete Carroll in my mind. You know, you talk about the other one win Super Bowl. Mike McCarthy, he beats Mike McCarthy. Oh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so,
1: I mean, you know, so among the one Super Bowl coaches, I think he's the only one who might be ahead of him would be Andy Reid. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Um, of the two Super Bowl, we see how hard it was for Tom Flores. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was really hard for Tom really Flores. Tired. And he pulled off two of the biggest Super Bowl upsets <laughs> ever. First right. wild card team to win a Super Bowl. And then right. you beat the Washington Redskins team that had set the points record in right. the NFL. So, I mean, it's you know, it took him a hard time. So it's not gonna be easy for Sean Payton, but when all is said and done, yeah, I believe Deuce is absolutely right. He's gonna go down in the list of the great offensive minds of all time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one or two really good double-digit seasons after Drew Brees is gone, if you can yep. get, turn Taysom Hill into a quarterback and takes you to the playoffs.
2: That's Hall of Fame right there. Yeah,
1: that'll do it. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I think 150 wins and a couple more deep runs in the postseason, I think that puts him in.
2: Yeah. You
1: look at him
2: compared to the other teams within his division too, since you're talking about divisional games, Sean Payton over the time that he's been in New Orleans has more 13 win games than the other three NFC South teams combined in their entire history, which is insane which is insane. So he definitely has what he needs, whatever the formula is within the NFC South. If he wins, you know, if the saints win the NFC South division this year, they become the first team within the division to win four straight. We've seen yep. three straight now a couple Carolina times. And from the mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we would see for the first time, three straight. I think that that is something that's helpful is continuing to win the division. And then those, like you mentioned, the deeper runs in the playoffs. But I think one thing that you mentioned that's key that I didn't consider is facilitating that change from one quarterback to the other, like what we saw from uh, Joe Montana to Steve Young. Seeing something like that from Drew Brees into Taysom Hill, Jameis Winston, or whoever it may be, uh, seeing something like that I think would be a huge extra piece of context that I think would be something that would help him get into the Hall of Fame for sure. Yeah,
1: because, I mean, you look, you go over Tom Landry's career – and going from Don Meredith to Craig Morton right. to Roger Staubach, and even up to Danny White, he was still taking them to NFC championship games. Right. So, you know, you have that kind of thing, and then you you take a look at in Andy Reid to go from Donovan McNabb and then to have um, the success that he had even with uh, Michael Vick for a, a hot minute, and mm-hmm. then you go and you, you win games with Alex Smith. And now you got Pat Mahomes. So I think, yeah, you look at those things – and those are also things that people look back is that adaptability did you yep. were you able to change who you were at different times that's what don Shula's thing you go from a yep. primarily a running coach in his early days with the the giants and with the dolphins to then okay i've got dan marino and i'm going to fling it all over the place so i mean right. those kind of adjustments i think that's what people are looking for and I think the early part of Sean Payton's career where we was cycling through defensive coordinators mm-hmm. and, the, and the, you know, the saints were you know, losing those games that by that one possession thing where people just like, did he throw too much? That, that kind of perception. Right. I think that he has to get over. And the, the best way to do that is to like make that transition. If you yeah. can do that, you, yeah. it's, it's a lock to me.
2: Hey, look, he gave Kerry Collins a few of his best seasons. And if you can do that with Kerry Collins as an offensive coordinator, then I think there's reason to try. The the thing about Sean, though, that I will mention when it comes to quarterbacks is that we've seen him so far – not really at least build the reputation as a quarterback developer. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's something that's huge and that's missing from his game so far. So even just, you know, before the transition into a new quarterback, even just developing quarterbacks that maybe we see succeeding elsewhere, which we've seen in some offenses and we've seen from some coaches, we haven't seen that from Sean Payton. So lifting that veil, I think would be huge for him.
1: Yep. Let's sort of a big picture thing right now. Mm Mm-hmm. I have noticed that NFL owners have been incredibly quiet. Very. Ever since Roger Goodell made his hostage video. (laughs) (laughs) The only owner it seems you've heard from is Dan Snyder because he's had to come out and talk. Yeah. Do you think this is a coordinated thing with the NFL where basically they've told owners, shut up so we don't make a mistake. We cannot have a mistake right now. I need you all to be quiet. And if there's going to be a statement, it's coming from the league office. I think it's very possible. And honestly, I think
2: it would be a smart thing to do by the NFL is to, I mean, we talked about them the last time that we were here last week, we talked about controlling the narrative, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That also means sometimes keeping some of these other, you know, ancillary pieces, these other 32 pieces that are part of your, you know, brain trust, quiet. Sometimes, um, you know, we've, we heard a little bit from, from Gail Benson. We heard a little bit from uh, a, a little tiny, tiny bit. We heard a little bit from the uh, the Jags owner as well. Who's always been one of the more outspoken owners. Anyway. When you got a mustache uh, like that, you can outspoken. do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, you know, but outside of that, we haven't really heard from, from, from any of these guys, like you mentioned, any of these people, like you mentioned. And so I think that that is a bit of a concerted effort of like, please, this is not the time to to rock the boat. Like, we're we're they're trying so hard to make this season happen in the midst of a global pandemic, in and. the midst of uh, <laughs> you're right, right, and and and, and all these and. other things that they got going on, right? And so I think that when you have something like this humongous social conversation that's happening that spans. All these different varieties of, of the way that we look at each other, the way that we look at the treatment of other people, everything that makes us sort of investigate outwardly and inwardly. Don't come out here with, you know, your billionaire take right now and trying to give your very clouded perception of the the experience you think is universal, but is also entirely specific and unique to who you are mm-hmm. and mess up the progress that they, the league is trying to make. And when I say progress, what I mean is progress towards having a season, which I yes. think is pr- protecting their, that's
1: their number one. Yeah. That's yeah.
2: Number. Protecting their product.
1: That's number one. It's yeah. The, all the other measures, um, you know, we've talked about this. They, mm-hmm. they just feel cosmetic until we get something real on the table. Um, right. So let's get into some fun stuff. Great. All right. So Cam Jordan had a great <laughs> petty week. <laughs> Going back to he the really, last,
2: week, he really did. <laughs>
1: the, the last week as Cam and New Orleans loves petty. That that mm-hmm. is, it is part of the fabric and the DNA of <laughs> New Orleanians, especially when it relates to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So he first he says playing in Atlanta has me ready for playing in stadiums with no fans. And then the stat comes out that no one in history has sacked one quarterback more than Cam Jordan has sacked Matt Ryan, which he says is his favorite number of his career. He loves That's that right. stat, and, and he tells <laughs> he tells Matt Ryan directly, "I'm getting it. Let's get the twenty. Let's get the twenty, baby." <laughs> How much do you love this level of petty? And and on a scale of one to petty,
2: <laughs>
1: where do you put it?
2: i have at the scale of one to petty. I put him at Sean Payton, you know what I'm saying? Because he's, he's right up there. And like that, that's the thing is right. Leadership comes from the top. Sean Payton has been fun. He's been petty. He's done all these things that have sort of really sent the ripple effect of, uh, of the way that we are, which is pro petty. Uh, in New Orleans, in terms of the way that we we celebrate this culture and this team's culture, and and Cam's always been about that. You remember uh, two years ago, ahead of the Week 15 game against the uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, when they were like, "How does it feel going up against a top five quarterback, uh, Ben Roethlisberger?" And he said, "Really." <laughs> really (laughs) name 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 your top five like just halted the entire interview to have that conversation and sending you know jordan brand wine to cam cam newton along with a broomstick after they swept them and beat them beat the panthers three times in a row two seasons ago so it's it's very much a part of who Cam Newton, I'm sorry, Cam Jordan is, and what he brings to this team, and I love it, I love it entirely. And it's funny, like when you look at those numbers, the 17 sacks on uh, Matt Ryan, you look at the you know 11 and a half that he has on Jameis Winston, the I think it's seven or so that he has on Cam Newton. Like he has feasted within his division, and it's just interesting to see whatever it is that Cam Jordan has done that has put him in a position to where he's ready every single time he lines up across from Matt Ryan, because you don't see that type of number when it comes to, you know, JJ Watt lining mm-hmm. up against, you know, his division opponents. And certainly there's been more changeover in quarterbacks there. Andrew Luck missed some time, and then he surprisingly retired. Houston's changed over quarterbacks. Jacksonville's changed over quarterbacks. But still you don't see that number when it comes to other premier pass rushers in the NFL lining up against division opponents. So there's something specific about what Cam Jordan either sees whether it's whether it's red or whatever it is that he sees when he looks at uh matt ryan from across the line of scrimmage or whoever it is that he's lining up against lining up across he's got that number and he'll he'll continue to march with it and i think we'll see him hit 20 i mean he had four sacks in in the thanksgiving game right you know what i'm saying and you want me to say you know i mean and people are like oh no he's not going to get
1: three more sacks on matt ryan next season just even this season or the next two i mean it's clearly it's going to grow But uh, like you, that was an interesting point you made about the factors within the division. A, Mm -hmm. let's first and foremost we give credit to Cam Jordan, who works as hard as any player in the league, Mm -hmm. knows his assignments, shows up, does his job. That's Mm -hmm. the first biggest factor. Is him alone. The other things I think, and and just listening to you talk, I was thinking about the relative inconsistency in this division in coaching. And how, in a lot of divisions, when you see stability, teams start shifting their game plans for certain players. You Mm -hmm. know, in the 80s, we talked, you talked about how really Joe Gibbs developed his entire offense, what became a record setting offense on its own because of Lawrence Taylor. Right. He had to shift his entire offensive philosophy (laughs) to stop Lawrence Taylor. And then he realized if it can work against him, it works against anybody. Right. And that was consistency and familiarity. You've had so many coaches in Tampa. Mm-hmm. So many co- Carolina's been the most stable, you'd say, with John Fox or and and, and, and um Ron Rivera, and, and Ron yeah. Rivera for the for the for the vast majority. And I think that's why Cam's number is it was lower. Yeah. You know, also you had, I mean he's just
2: always said like Cam's just hard harder t- to take yeah, down. It's <laughs> hard to take Cam's. And Cam, Cam can yeah.
1: move on his own and trying to tackle a guy who's almost as big as you are right. is really hard. Um but yeah, and, but then you also you look at Atlanta. And they've had line protection problems. They've had different mm-hmm. coaches. They've had weird philosophies at times offensively. So I think that they, that lack of consistency at times has benefited him. But ultimately, it does rely on Cam Jordan and his ability. But I think certainly, yeah, when you have a division that's in constant upheaval, and the constant is Cam Jordan is eating you up,
0: <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> like, like that—that that is really interesting. I, I I just hadn't considered some of those factors. But yeah, they're, they're, I think there are more factors to it, but ultimately the dudes he's a, he, he'll be the next um outside of drew Brees. He, i think he's the next saint uh to, to possibly oh. make a Canton uh, stop
2: a hundred percent a hundred percent So no good. i i completely agree
1: and sack numbers again are so relative right uh because it's hard to judge in a now in a league that is everybody's getting it out in three seconds mm-hmm. you have so many different schemes the dropbacks even though the drop back percentages are way higher than they were 20 years ago mm-hmm. the amount of passing attempts are way higher it's so much harder to get to the passer and get such a consistent rush so i think judging against his peers even it makes cam stand out a bit more rather than looking at some of the historic numbers for defensive linemen which he already stacks up well with but mm-hmm. look at just what's going on in this period and the amount of sacks that he's been able to get the amount of pressures i think it puts him in Um, hall of fame company
2: yeah absolutely you look at his sack numbers in total and you look at you know he has the majority of his sacks 63.6 percent uh came with seven uh, sorry that's uh 36.6 percent came with seven to ten yards to go right so first and seven to first and ten third and seven to third and ten things like that which means that the longer that it takes for routes to develop to get beyond the first down market, particularly on third downs where he has the majority of his sacks at twenty-seven point, I'm sorry, at twenty-seven and a half at thirty-two point two percent, that's the time to get after the quarterback, mm-hmm. right? That's the time to do. Oh, sorry, my bad. Yeah, that's on fourth down or a fourth quarter or an overtime. So that's him like getting later and getting later. better as into, the game goes on. Yeah, as the game goes on. Uh, but you look at what he's been able to do in terms of thirty-eight point four percent of his sacks coming on third down. That's that's what you want. That's exactly the type of play that you need. And to your point, the longer that the quarterback has to hold on to the ball for routes to develop on third down and long and and those and long type situations, that's where Cam Jordan's really able to eat because his motor is just beyond that of many of the other guys in the NFL. And we've talked about that before, but these numbers just can continue to back it up.
1: And you talk you look at the guys who are his peers you, you say a JJ Watt mm-hmm. or Von you know, Miller a Von Miller but Von Miller's more of a linebacker than a D.N. True.
2: that's that's an important distinction too
1: because he gets those free runs mm-hmm. because of the line, the D-line doing their job Von right. Miller, and and that doesn't take anything away from his talent no, you'd no, love no. to have Von Miller on your team the dude's as as good an outside rusher as there is but when you look at J.J. Watt's situation where he had a Jadavian Clowney across from him, where he had all pros on the defensive line next to him on a consistent basis while he was winning Defensive Player of the Year awards, mm-hmm. and he had at times all pro linebackers behind him too. Um, Cam has never really had that consistency behind him at linebacker. Right. He's never really had a ton of consistency on that line. Another guy who was worthy of his talents um, as, a, as an edge rusher Mm-hmm. You know, some, a, a complimentary bookend. It's right. been a color by numbers for most of the years for his career of who his teammates were going to be in those positions. And yet he has remained consistent.
2: Yeah. We talk about the Saints defense being historically bad numerous times. Yes. And Cam, Cam Jordan has never been affected by that. His production has remained regardless. And this is coming from a guy that was brought in and his rookie year played five tech. He was a run stopper. He, he developed into a pass rusher and everything as well. And I think that that's another important distinction is just looking at his ability to continue to change for the team, change within and find wherever it is that he's going to fit and produce the best and constantly challenge himself to improve and be better. You know, he had three sacks in one game and he'll turn around and tell you, I should have had five. Yep. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's very different than, you know, the way that some people look at improvement you know, or look at the the lack of need for improvement within themselves. He's always challenged himself to be better, and the the numbers and everything that he's put together, particularly against Matt Ryan, uh, show that he'll continue to he'll continue to do that.
1: Um, okay, so here's another one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why? What is this thing with Mike Thomas? I don't understand it. He gets the ninety nine <laughs> in Madden. Okay, so he's in the club. The other five oh, guys: man. Pat Mahomes, Christian McCaffrey, um, Aaron Donald, Stephon Gilmore. You can, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, Gilmore might be one that I'm like 99 and I'm not sure. Maybe. I mean, yeah. Yeah, okay. But it's, it's a DB, whatever. Yeah. But the only guy that people are flipping out about is Mike Thomas. And we're talking yeah. about who's averaged what 117 catches a season over his career, mm-hmm. 90 yards a game mm-hmm. broke has broken. Just about every season record outside of touchdowns at this point that you can do first five years of his career. Only Jerry Rice has been better Statistically, basically, what is the problem with the world accepting that Mike Thomas is as good a receiver as we've seen in the last decade?
2: I don't know. I I honestly wish I could explain it because I really, I'm with you 100% in that I don't understand what what the issue is here. People love to rag on him about, you know, the slant routes and everything like that. People love to come at him about that. But he ran just as many slant routes last season as Julio Jones. Ain't nobody going at him about, you know, ain't nobody going at Julio Jones about it. Uh, he gets into the end zone more, more than Julio Jones. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Way more than Julio Jones. Um, he has, what are some of the other things? He's got...
1: His catch more, rate?
2: Yeah, his catch rate's insane. He's got more seasons, wh- or he's got more, he's got fewer games with less than three catches or less, yeah, with three catches or fewer than pretty much anybody else that you want to stack him up against. He's consistently a part of the game plan. He's got fewer seasons than... I'm oh, sorry, he's got few, fewer games where he's gone under 40 or 45 or 50 yards than most of the other uh, players across the NFL as well. He's got fewer interceptions when targeted because of his insane catch rate and because of the fact that he can work himself open, because of the fact that he can create separation. The only player, the only wide receiver for the Saints to be able to create separation that we've seen over the past couple of years since Brandon Cooks was shipped off. And so I I don't understand – what it is about Michael Thomas that makes player sorry that makes fans from other teams or or wherever it might be because it's usually Falcons fans and Vikings fans those are usually the ones that are coming at him a little bit of Bucks fans things like that but even still you see it all over the place that there's some big issue with Michael Thomas who just set the record for most catches in a season What's the issue with him getting a 99 in Madden? Also, why are you so upset about what's going on in Madden? Like, like chill. It's, but it just gives people another opportunity to come after Michael Thomas for whatever this weird infatuation is it's, with him I've and his I've not game.
1: seen this. And, strange. I, and, and being be completely objective, I've not seen this with another elite receiver. Nobody did that with Reggie Wayne, who lined up in the same spot every game for Peyton Manning. Same with Marvin right. Harrison, lined up in the yep. same spot every game for the right. Colts. Nobody has said any of that. I mean, it's like we've seen receivers who were not as good as Mike Thomas. And again, Reggie Wayne, fantastic receiver. I don't think he's mm-hmm. in Mike Thomas's class. Right. But they, he never got those criticism. We've Mm-mm. not seen number one receivers who put up the numbers that Mike Thomas has. It didn't happen when Roddy White was the number one guy in Atlanta. Right. He was getting more praise than what Mike Thomas is getting. Nobody begrudged Calvin Johnson. Nobody right. begrudged. I mean, it's just. There's something about Mike Thomas that I just don't understand, where people have a have a like you said a, a problem. It's not just right. like a rivalry; it's a legitimate right. problem. Yeah, in the way that they view him, like he's like he's not good. It's not just he's not my favorite. People treat him like he's not good.
2: Right. And he just put up 1,700 receiving yards in a season. Like, I don't I, – I'll never understand it. I, I really won't. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure where it comes from. Maybe it's his presence. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's extremely confident. He's extremely vocal. But we've seen that from several wide receivers over there. Look at Odell Beckham Jr. Has anybody been more vocal and more present than Odell Beckham Jr. off of the field? You know what I mean? Or like, Randy
1: Moss or, or Michael Randy Irvin. Moss. I mean, yeah. Yeah. this is the position, and he's not – the thing is, though, he's confident, but he's not an ass.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You don't hear him and talking and he... a bunch
1: of shit Monday through Saturday. Right.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, And then the other part of it, too, is that people like to come at him as a, they call him, you know, whiner is the word that always comes to him and that he whines too much. And it shocks me to see that because you're talking about, you know, a lot of people that say that I've seen are Bucks fans in particular with Mike Evans gets so mad. Anytime that a player gets an intercept, like PJ Williams. Outdogged him last year. Outdogged him in the end zone last year, and and what did he do? He ended up knocking the ball out of P.J. Williams' hands, shoving players, and everything like that. He did, you know, he took that cheap shot on Marshawn Lattimore not so long ago in his rookie season. Yep. and it's like, come on, like where do you see Michael Thomas doing any of that? None of I,
1: that. I've never seen Mike Thomas get in a, a, a conflict, altercation. Flag. I've never, <laughs> seen, never seen it. Yeah, never seen it. the dude. The, the person he talks to most on game day is himself. Right. <laughs> right. You know, He's just place. out
2: there doing his thing.
1: I, I mean, I, I just don't get it. It's, it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It's just yeah, it's incredibly it's weird. Because it's one thing for Marcus Colston to just never get respect because he, his demeanor, he just never was seen the way that maybe he should have been. Right. But Mike Thomas, like, said, it goes from indifference to anger. And, and right. I. I
2: it's, it's weird. It's so it, strange.
1: So the other ratings you have for the team that are notable, Cam Jordan gets a ninety-six. Mm-hmm. I I think that's fair. I respect it. All right, Teron Armstead ninety-five. Okay. Drew Brees ninety-three. Okay. Because I think he's been, you know, b- the arm strength. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I
2: think it's, I think it's like arm strength, his throw power is like eighty-six or something like yeah. that. So you know, they gave him what they needed to give him. I think, it, and I think at they're forty
1: right. ninety-three. Right. You know, <laughs> hey, yeah. what did you try to get. Right. Ramcheck at 91 i think is low
2: he should have been higher he should have been higher than breeze
1: yes i think i mean That's he's certain... one of the top five tackles in the league right right i mean that, that to me he should at least be a 95 i didn't right i, didn't he, know.
2: I, I was like he should probably be around right where Tehran is honestly. another
1: guy got screwed demario davis with an 89 time
2: 89 he an should be 89 he should be in the 90s easy is it what pro? Is this? So, it's so interesting it's so interesting to see like all right the way that we look at Michael Thomas and then juxtapose that to the way that we look at DeMario Davis, right? And then DeMario Davis consistently, you know, consistently producing. He's got crazy averages. He, he is producing at a level that is akin to Michael Thomas's level at his position. And no one pays attention to the guy.
1: He couldn't even make the Pro Bowl. Right. Like <laughs> Not, right. As a, not the a popularity a, not contest. <laughs> like, I mean... It, even the oh. first round, it's the second. the second round of players is like, nope, still no Mike Thomas. Right. But, I mean, uh, no. uh, uh Davis. Davis. Yeah, yeah. It's just crazy. So then you get um, Alvin Kamara at eighty-eight, which I understand because last season mm-hmm. just was not. This yeah. year, he did. He did. He needs to prove something. Yeah. Uh, Emmanuel Sanders and uh, Jared Cook at eighty-seven.
2: Uh huh. I'm I'm that, okay with that. I'm okay, I'm with, that. okay with that. Now
1: I'm another okay. one that gets me is Marshawn Latterboard at eighty-six. 86?
2: Come on. Come on.
1: What's that about? And, I had,
2: and they had somebody wild rated above him. I think Jari Alexander, which don't get me wrong. I like I liked Jari Alexander. He's a good corner. He's a very good corner. But does he deserve to be ranked higher than Marshawn Lattimore? Absolutely not.
1: I mean, we're talking – again, not. Marshawn Lattimore is considered one of the top five cover corners in the NFL. Right. And the numbers bear it out. Right. The numbers bear it out. They, they are so good. Like, I mean, it's – I don't – the respect level, and, and it used to be a real problem. And you thought the Saints had kind of gotten over that hurdle as they mm-hmm. sort of became America's second team in a, right. for a lot of people. Right. Um, but still, it's just like these guys produce, produce, produce. And we don't see the Pro Bowl nom- uh, Pro Bowl selections. No. You don't see the All Pro selections, mm-hmm. and you're winning 12, 13 games a year for each of the last three seasons, and you're not getting the representation. It it just it's like they're hanging it on two players, right. Pretty much, and, and and two or three guys because it comes down to every year it's Michael Thomas, Drew Brees, Cam Jordan, and Ryan Ramchick gets he gets his due. Right. That's it. Yeah. That's it. The rest of that lineup might as well, in a lot of ways, not exist to the, Mm -hmm. to the, to the larger football world. Right. And I mean, even a Thomas Morse did who got a good rating. Right. But among punters, if you're comparing him to other punters, he's like fourth or fifth in the game. Makes no sense. They
2: have him, but he should be, you know, top two.
1: (laughs) Yes. He's a legitimate weapon. And I I tell people that all the time. I said, how many times do you, have you seen your punter be a weapon? And we have literally seen games where he was a deciding factor when the saints didn't have an offense going and yep. he just kept making other teams go 80 yards or 90 yards with yep. some great coffin kicks.
2: Yeah. I mean, nobody's plays better. Right. Exactly. And his ability to flip the field is just insane. And that's such an incredible, that's one of the things that makes the special teams unit all together for the saints. So good. Now that they have Demario Davis as well, they can flip the field one way or the other. And that's huge in games and controlling momentum and controlling your ability to, you know, the difference between you having to go, 60 yards and the other team having to go 90 to 80 yards builds up over time.
1: Yep. And it's and it, like you said, it, it, it helps the other side. Cause if, even if the saints get the ball back 40, 50 yard line, their own will Lutz is good enough to make some, make those kicks if you can't yep. get in the end zone. So it helps yep. so much for them. All right. Well, the last thing is you guys did an article on if the saints had to a hypothetical, which we don't yes. think the saints are right. ever going to change their name. I don't right. think it's, it's something that bothers anybody um, in that regard. So, but the list you had of mm-hmm. the guys in your conversation, and I, uh, the Jazz, which ain't gonna uh-huh. happen. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> The Brass, the uh, former hockey shout team. Out, shout out to the Hockey League. Shout out to, uh, I guess, Ray Nagan, who owned the Brass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't
2: think checking. I've ever said shout out Ray Nagan in my life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Give Ray some shit. You know, hey, is, he, is he still locked up? Is Ray, Ray still locked I don't, up, I guess. I think so, I yeah, yeah. I, uh, even Edward it got out before Ray. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Pelicans, which is not going to happen. I don't understand no, why anybody I would say that. I don't know why that one came up. No, you're not going to have two t- teams in the City Day Pelicans. Right. The crawfish, the alligators, I, man. the beignets. What the hell is up with the beignets? <laughs> who's who's going to wear a beignets
2: jersey? Yeah, it's real intimidating. you, know no. like you got to intimidate your opponent because, you know, if you breathe in before you take a bite, you're done. True. You're finished. That's well, it. And, and if you don't have any
1: <laughs> milk or water or coffee, right. you're going to have dry mouth and right. you're done. But it's just – Voodoo seems like to be the most logical if there ever were yeah. um, because it is something that people loved. Yeah, It was a great design yep. um, and it was, I think the colors were awesome. I think they could be modified, certainly, as kind of like your shirt does. You modify you know, a little bit, you know, you know,
2: you know, get a little bit of that going on. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, <laughs>
1: and it could work. I mean, it could work. But that, to me, again, I think whatever New Orleans does, if there were ever to be a name change, you want to, This is a city and a state that is very insular and wants something that represents the people exactly. And I think we all have some affinity for the voodoo culture, whether we. You know, believe in it or not, you just—it's—it's right. it's been a part of your life. And one, you know, the Marie yes. Laveau story. You've been right. to the wax museum. You've been—you right. know—I mean, it's just—it's part of our culture. And so I think, yeah, it's funny. But yeah, I'm gonna I want to—I want to make sure. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead and say it because the last question is going to be just funny. It's really a funny oh, gotcha. Thing. I just want
2: to make sure that I credit that. You know, voodoo was my nomination. I did not nominate beignets, crawfish, <laughs> alligators. I didn't do none of that. I nominated voodoo. And for exactly the purposes that you talked about, connection to the city, this team is already so entrenched in the culture of its city that if it had to change its name, I think that they would change their name to a way that continued or even deepened that connection. And voodoo would be the perfect way to do it.
1: Yep. It's easy to say. It sells. Mm-hmm. Just change the number font.
2: And there's an intimidation factor. Like, imagine the fans showing up for a voodoo game. Like, imagine the Houdet Nation showing up for a voodoo game.
1: Oh imagine the music Death you can out. put the atmosphere oh. people painting their oh. faces white with the the black yep. paint here the the skeleton. Yep. oh come on man it, yep. it would, oh. it's it's it would be something to rival what the um black hole used black to
2: hole be Black Hole is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. There ain't gonna yeah, be no yeah. black
1: hole in LA. It's not the same. It's <laughs> no. not. <laughs> It's not going to be the same, (laughs) but it would, it it would be something like that except new Orleanians don't really get into fights with opposing fans. You know, right. Right. There's no, I I can't remember an assault in the Superdome where it really got bad. You know, the worst
2: thing, the worst thing that ever happened in the Superdome that made like national news was a few years back when um, the Bengals had visited and AJ Green handed a ball to a a Bengals fan and a Saints fan ripped the ball out. That That was the worst thing. Right. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he gave the ball back to her after like, just being like, "I'." Oh, we just petty. Least, AJ right?
1: Green probably found that kid later and gave him, if something, something right. got taken care
2: of. It. Yeah. And, and I just wanted, it was a full grown person ripping the ball away from another full grown person. So not, you know, as terrible <laughs> as it could have been. Like that was the worst thing that happened. Like, come on.
1: <laughs> All right. Come I'm going to end on this one. So yeah. there's video out now. A 46 year old Terrell Owens <laughs> running a 4440. Should the Saints sign T.O. and bring him to camp and uh, put him in that third spot? Uh,
2: no, <laughs> we have to stop. We
1: have to, you know
2: how, <laughs> <laughs> how many damn wide receivers? You know how many wide receivers? Like we get questions about Des Bryant, about Josh Gordon, Martavis Bryant. I got a question about Percy Harvin the other day. Now I know we're gonna get because you know, oh look, Percy Harvin ran up a parking garage like stop, and then now Terrell Owens. Which shout out Terrell Owens being able to run a four four at his age and everything, doing what he's doing. Like shout out to him, but he ain't getting back on no football field. That's no, not. Oh, no, that we're just way.
1: having fun, man. We're just yeah, having fun. no, was- I, know,
2: I know, I know, I know. But it's just, it, it's so funny though because it really is like it feels like that sometimes. Like when you see somebody that like has that big time. And it, like if Ocho Cinco ran out there and then ran a four, four, like he, he was there to say, too. He just he, didn't oh, run. Of course he was. Of he was course there, he just he didn't run. <laughs> but man, it was, and I remember a couple of years back, like when there were all the rumors that Calvin Johnson was going to become Megatron was gonna be coming back from retirement and everything. Like we get so excited about that and everything. And so it's always a lot of fun, but there's always those other guys that sort of like catch on to that, that trend, like Percy Harvin and some of these other guys that are trying to reinstate themselves back into the NFL. And it's like, okay, let's just, Let's bring it down a little bit. Let's bring it down a little bit. But hey, look, if T.O. says he wants to come back, I'm not going to say don't give him a contract.
1: No, I mean, you try try (laughs) out. But I'll say this. I I think that a lot of times when we see players do stuff like this, when they're in workouts and they show that they can still run, that's not playing football.
2: Very different. It's can
1: you take 16 weeks of hits? Can you get up every time? And at 46 – I just don't know if anybody could do that right. at wide What's receiver your... in the NFL. I just don't. It doesn't right. matter how fast you are; those hits are going to accumulate over the course of a season, and it's just not the same. It's it's at all. it's not running a straight line for 40 yards.
2: That's it. Let me. What's your change of direction like at 46? To like how hips. quickly can you come in and out of breaks? Right? How fluid are those hips? Like, there's so many other factors to it. It's exciting, and it's fun, and everything like that. But it is worth it is worth looking at just the the insane amount of intricacies that go into the position to help you appreciate guys like Michael Thomas that for some reason people don't want to appreciate, but you know, guys like Michael Thomas and guys like Marcus Colston who did it for so many years consistently. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's an incredible thing.
1: Yeah. Like just to end on that. Um, like to me, I think Marcus Colston, the guy I, I, while we were talking about this, Mm -hmm. he, he reminds me of Art Monk. Marcus Mm -hmm. Colston Mm -hmm. was like the modern day Art Monk. Yep. You know, not flashy. Mm -mm. um, Out there did the work. And just and, and and had a guy and a compliment like the and for him it was the Lance Moores and guys right. like that were the more Ricky Sanders type you know mm-hmm. Gary Clark's mm-hmm. where he was the steady I'll get you that that ten yep. you know what I mean Jimmy Graham got to get all the fan all the highlights right Marcus was gonna get you that ten or the fifteen or that seventeen whatever you needed Marcus could get it you know what I'm saying I love so that. I love that utility he was such a utilitarian wide receiver yes. and so good at it and so underappreciated and just. Um, I think it's, it's good to keep bringing – another one of those guys that just belongs in the ring of honor. Yes. And I think yes. the Saints need to – that's one thing. Let, let's end on this. Step on it. The Saints have to get going with that ring of honor because we've already lost two members of the Dome Patrol, and all of those right. guys should be up there. Yep, Every last one of them. Yep. You do, uh, the other guys who I think belong and, – and if I forget anybody, Dalton needs to be up there, Dalton Hilliard. Yes. I think Wayne Martin needs to be up there. He's yes. a guy who's gotten forgotten.
2: I know, like we, we, I talked about Wayne Martin on a show not so long ago, and I got a couple people like tell me more about Wayne Martin because like, you do you realize really he's second about all time it. in like, sacks right like in the Saints a, history? Yeah. Do you
1: understand how good Wayne Martin was? Right, he was a tremendous player. I think he should be there. I think Frank Warren belongs there, and Jim Wilkes because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, they were outstanding players. Dombrowski, um, oh yeah, 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 and I would probably say um, Stan Brock belongs uh-huh. up there.
2: One of the most solid offensive linemen in his time, like across the league all together. And had a little bit of versatility on him too at a time where versatility wasn't, wasn't a thing for offensive linemen.
1: And I mean, like, it's hard to find a lot of great secondary players for the Saints <laughs> over their history for a good yeah, while. Maybe
2: Dave Waymer and... Sammy
1: Knight? Would you Sam, put yeah, Sammy in there? I would group?
2: love to see Sammy Knight. Because you know Sammy Knight, like, let's be real, Sammy Knight's not going to get Canton. No,
1: right? no, but, but it,
2: he's... He's in the Saints Hall of Fame already. Mm-hmm. He was a huge part of, like, culture during that time as well. It was an unfortunate time with that head coach, but it was a time nonetheless. But, you know, I, I love Sammy and I. Sam, Knight. Sam Knight was one of my favorite players coming up.
1: And he was an instant turnover, and he mm-hmm. was a hitter. I yep. love loved Sammy. It just his career was too short. It just didn't yeah. get lo- enough length to it. But yep. Michael Lewis, would you put Michael Lewis up there?
2: Man, talk about somebody that electrified the entire city. Hell yeah, i put Michael Lewis in the Ring of Honor. That's thing <laughs> that I like about the Ring of Honor is that you can look at the Ring of Honor, you can say, all right, these are people that are in there because of what they did at a legendary level. Right. Or you can look at them and say, these are people that ignited the franchise. And Michael Lewis was. And he's such a fantastic story as just the everyman person getting into the NFL. You know, he was... Beer truck driver came in. He worked with a couple of uh, semi-pro football, leagues, arena yeah, football, yeah. all that. Had his little tryout with the Philadelphia Eagles and then got the local day and everything. And then just took the league by storm as a returner. And he worked as a receiver. For the saints as well like I, I love michael lewis he was one of my he was the dude that made me want to start returning kicks when i was playing football i was like all right i want to do that i was not nearly as good i was okay but i was not michael lewis <laughs>
1: now, that's funny is that the saints have had an abundance of riches in the return game for at certain times because you had I mean, mel gray
2: mel gray you know, mm-hmm. and
1: you had tyrone hughes
2: mm-hmm. oh,
1: who was an outstanding man. returner oh. and then all of a sudden it fell off man we didn't have returners for like 15 years <laughs> And, and throughout the Sean Payton era, again, right. have not had a lot outside yeah. of Reggie Bush a couple Reggie of times.
2: Bush, and you had Darren Sproles for like a couple of years, but that was it.
1: That was it. it. It just, it's weird that they have not, Deontay Harris looks like he could be one of those difference makers in the return game. We're holding out so there, a hope for him. And this year, just expanding his role in general should mm-hmm. be a lot more touches for him. But yeah, yeah. I, it, this thing's got to get going on the, the ring of honor. They, yeah, I think they've neglected it, and it's time to start speeding it up because their history is better than people think. Right. And there are guys like George Rogers, who I think belong up there, mm-hmm. Danny and Bramowitz, who is somebody who's just gotten yep. forgotten as well, um, who was probably the first real star the Saints had. Yep. You know what I mean? Because even before Archie Manning, they had Danny and Bramowitz. Right. And so I, I think it's, there's just a, so many guys who who deserve that recognition. I don't even think Jim Jim Fink's name isn't up there yet. mm and Jim Moore's name isn't up there yet.
2: No, you don't see either of them. You got the pair of <clears throat> running backs, too. You got uh, Tony Galbraith and uh, Chuck Muncie, Thunder and Lightning, who big time, big-time players for the Saints when they were around, too, that go along with Dalton Hilliard at that running back position. Like, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of options that they can throw up there. Because the thing, I think that your observation is right. Like People don't understand really how rich the Saints' history is because we look at 2006 and on. For the most part, we don't yep. really look before that. Maybe we look a little bit at the Aaron Brooks years before 2005. Yeah, because Joe know, getting a, into bring the up playoffs and everything, Joe Horn, yep. Uh, you know, getting into the playoffs, getting your first playoff win, like we kind of start the clock there and then we skip. If we go back beyond that, we skip to the Dome Patrol. Yep. And then that's it. Yep. You know what I'm saying? But there's yep, so much finished. in between that and before that 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 took place.
1: Yep. Because, I mean, you, you can't. Tom make
2: Myers? It,
1: yeah. You can make oh. a case also for um, Eric Martin.
2: Eric Martin. Oh, I love Eric Martin. I'm and a then big top e- fan of Eric you'd
1: Martin. Even have to, you'd even have to talk about Jimmy Graham getting up there Jimmy one day Graham. too. mm mm-hmm. yeah. no, I mean, he... there's
2: tons of players right. post-2011, you know, post-2009 or so that would make it in there. And then you can go to 2009. You can look at you know Tracy Porter is going to be on that ring of honor at some point. For certain, I mean, you look at what he did in the uh, you know just just the two plays, the interception in the MC Championship game, the interception for a touchdown in the in the Super Bowl. Like that's enough. That's enough to get you up there.
1: And it's weird. Like, would you would you consider a guy like Eric Allen, who had a couple of Pro Bowl seasons in New Orleans?
2: Eric like, Allen's an interesting because he had a whole career before, right. and then and he, and he, and he went on and, and had after. some years with the Raiders. Afterwards. That's right after, yeah, yeah.
1: So he's in. It's, it's true. It's like, do Pro Bowls get you, you know, in even if right. you weren't here a long time? Because a right. guy like Jonathan Vilma, who's in the Saints Hall of Fame, only played four years, four and years only two Saints, of those yeah. were really full years. Right. Like, true. He, the injuries really started to take him apart, but he was a leader on that team in a different way. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of part what happened with Will Smith. It's like, you look at Will Smith's career, by and large, it's a good career. You, it's, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's a good career. Yeah. Um. But. It's the other things that certainly pushed him to the front of the line. I did have kind of a problem with him moving up to the front line, not not with him getting in, but with right. the people that he jumped past in my mm-hmm. mind to get in and be the first guy after the Hall of Famers to get in. Right. I just thought that, that was kind of a slap yeah. to, to guys like Pat Swilling and, and, and Vaughn Johnson and Sam Mills and all those, a lot of those yeah, other guys. That like mentioned.
2: you mentioned the Dome Patrol, like that's huge. Yeah.
1: It, it, that just bothers it's still that's mm-hmm. something that forever has bothered me and i've talked to ricky jackson about it a couple of times and mm-hmm. it, it bothers him too i think he oh, feels like go. that group has not been given their due um especially you know as again you lost two of them right you already lost yeah
2: two. yeah
1: and we almost lost ricky not that long yeah, that's we, true it, it, that's true yeah so yeah, I think you know, give them their flowers while they're here, man, because they're not gonna be For here real. much longer. Football players just don't make. We already lost. We lost Jim Wilkes too. Jim Wilkes, yeah, heart attack and, and gone like three years after he retired. It just it was right. So yeah, but this has been another great one, dude. I love it. we yeah, talk man. together. Um, we go all over the place and we have fun with it. <laughs> but I hope we gave folks information, gave them some fun. That's all we can do.
2: That's it, man. That's it. And and you know, we got to have a little bit of fun. It's always a blast Absolutely. every time that I get to chat with you, man. I always love doing it. I like when we can go long form yeah. and everything too and just really hit everything that we want to hit. Like I, I love it, man. I appreciate you as always for having me come through.
1: And and we'll back be back again at it next week. Next week, man. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been Hard in the Paint with David Grubb. We'll be back tomorrow with another one. Thanks for listening.